0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, And to Athia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever no longer as a slave but more than a slave as a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I am just a redeemed sinner talking to many redeemed sinners. And I pray today for a miracle to happen as we pray every Sunday at this moment that You would come down And that you would be clearly seen through your word. That you would ignite in us. Oh, a greater passion. A greater desire. For your glory to show up. For your glory to be displayed. My Lord, would you take this. This body of believers. Would you take this fellowship. And would you do a miracle in it. Would you take us redeemed sinners and cause your glory to be clearly seen inside this church and outside this church? Would you do something that only you can do? Would you make us a church that demands an answer from outsiders? Would you make us a church that clearly displays you and to which other people look at and say, Why? What? We don't have the power to do this. But in your plan, you have deemed to do it through us. So would you do that? I have many weak words today. So would you take these weak words and infuse them with power? Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Would you show us where we're holding on to self-righteousness? Would you show us where we're trying to create our own little kingdoms in this church? Where Where we are running around with our own crowns on our heads instead of submitting to you, the King. King Jesus, display yourself today and draw us again to yourself for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, after I read that, it would also be understandable or if after getting the e-link this week you read Philemon and you asked yourself, why is that in the Bible? What, what is this telling me? It sounds like it's about a runaway slave. That's probably true. And then Paul sends him back to his master. What do we do with that? It seems like a very diplomatically written letter. That is also true. It is a historic example of diplomatic communication. As one professor once said to me, Paul frames Philemon with love. It's love is all over the place in this letter in his appeal to Philemon. But why is it in the Bible? Why did this this private, personal letter show up in the Bible? Was it the B-side to Colossians? It was written and sent with the letter to the church in Colossae, and it's all the other things that I've said. It is a masterwork of gracious, love-driven exhortation. But it's not the how of the communication that will feed our souls today. It's the what. It's the content here. And if we get it, if we get it, it will turn us upside down. It will turn us as a church upside down. And it will reveal God's glory in ways that it it never otherwise would be revealed in us. The stakes are big here in this little letter. And hearing from Philemon, I hope we gain a greater picture of the reality of our church, of who we are, of who we really are. Each believer here and now is in a union with every other believer. We are united in Christ and through him, we are united into something called koinonia. This letter, this word is big in this letter. This koinonia exists for two reasons. The two reasons that I just said at the end of my prayer. To bring glory to Christ and to bring much good to us. We, each and every one of us believers, have been saved into this koinonia. Philemon really goes right to the core of this reality of koinonia. Um, It doesn't just tell us about concepts of bringing God glory and and Him good to us. It's more earthy than that. This is real life. We will be going to the real life core of of the reactor of God's glory welling up in the church. If I asked you, what could you do in this church that would get God the most glory? What would you say? What could you do? Something that would truly display Christ. Where, where other people are truly refreshed by it. Where they, where they truly are drawn to, to, to deep down spiritual rest in what Christ has done. Where they really see him. Where he is really displayed. Where you look like Jesus. Where you look like God. And you remind others of the amazing grace of God. What could you do to do that? What would that be? Where outsiders would say, You did what? Why? Where, as I prayed, we would become a church where the life of our church would become one where the, uh, that demands an answer from the outside. What could you do? What would it be? It's not something that only the specially trained can do. Every believer has been trained by God's amazing grace to do this thing. But we have a couple of problems. We'll get to this thing in a second. But we have a couple of problems. Too often, and I've been here, we're content to look at church and glorifying God in church on our own terms. We define the reality of church ourselves using our own intuition and oftentimes according to what is to our advantage, the way we want it, the way we want church to go, so we end up doing church, playing at in church instead of actually being part of this this miracle that God wants to create, much glory by getting a bunch of sinners together and and pulling a bunch of sinners together who have been redeemed by him, and then getting much glory from this amalgamation of many different people We often Run in willful ignorance. We don't think much about the way God has set up this fellowship of saints because we're content to define it for ourselves. Perhaps you can identify this in yourself, as I have, by listening for these words from your own mouth. I just think that church should da, 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 whatever comes after that. I just think that Christians should be. Da, 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 da. That's a good sign, that's a good pointer to the ways that we are defining church for ourselves. Not according to scripture, not according to the reality, the real way that God has set us all up. And when two people are defining their association through even slight self-advantage, both can't win. We will sin against each other, unfortunately. The question and the problem is often, what happens next? There is something here in Philemon that is nothing less than a miracle. We are a church full of sinners. It's a requirement for membership. (laughs) And yet we are redeemed sinners. People who have been bought by the blood of the Son of God. And at that intersection, that intersection of, of two redeemed sinners, one... Or both sinning against each other, a miracle happens. At least a miracle can happen. God can take hardened, accomplished sinners, redeem them, put them in the same body together, allow them to sin against each other, and then gain much glory and even bring us much good from the whole enterprise. Nothing less than a miracle. But we tend to drift from the gospel ever so slowly in the currents of real life. So God uses these sins and these circumstances, these intersections, to force our hand. To force the issue. To turn us back to the gospel. He uses these intersections of sins and circumstances to turn us back. And if we will turn back to the gospel, if we will find our identities in those, in those moments of intersection, in the gospel, in the realities that we're going to talk about today, we will find there a, a new and life-altering set of responsibilities. A new identity and a new set of responsibilities. And once we, once we get this, and once we submit to these things, this new identity and these new responsibilities, then our relationships will be transformed. Because those, those intersections of sin and circumstances will be transformed from glory robbing collisions of bitterness into bright sparks that flame up a display of God's glory. Isn't that, isn't that what you want in the church? To, for God's glory to, to spring up. I know that for me, that's what I want to want. <laughs> and I know that that's what God wants from this church, from us, in us. He wants His glory to flame up in an unmistakable way, in ways that you and I and outsiders see and and, and stand in awe at. And it can happen. Not only that, through all of that, He brings us ultimate, supreme good through these intersections. He does all of this He does all of this through forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's what Philemon is about. That's why it's in the Bible. This little letter is not a B-side to anything. This book is about the reality of our relationships and God getting much glory in the real-life intersections between two redeemed sinners. Redeemed sinners like you and me. So let's take a closer look. Um, A little bit of background here. Paul is writing, um, chained to a Roman guard, under house arrest, probably in Rome. Timothy's with him. And as you've already noticed, he addresses this letter to four different parties by layman, Paul's beloved friend. And Philemon is also a fellow worker for the gospel. We'll talk more about that in a bit. It's also addressed to Aphia, probably Philemon's wife. Also Archippus, probably their son. And this private, personal letter is also addressed to everybody else in Philemon's church. Which is fascinating. In the early days of the church... Uh, wealthy homeowners often served as the host and the benevolent supplier for the church. The church met in Philemon's home. And it seems that Philemon was faithfully and eagerly serving in that role. But the Letters written to everybody in this church. We'll get to that a little bit later. Paul opens in verse 3 with his usual greeting, but we shouldn't miss something. Paul wishes grace and peace to come Upon all four parties here. You could translate the you here as you all, the plural you. That grace and peace would come to them, and it's going to come to them through the words that Paul is about to say. Paul is saying something to Philemon in the hearing of the whole church, and the whole church is to hear what is said to Philemon. We'll explore this in a bit, as I said. Paul has something very difficult to ask of Philemon. His slave, named Onesimus, or useful in English, has run away. We don't know much of anything about the exact dispute. Um, But it seems that Onesimus ran away and perhaps stole something from Philemon to fund his new life. In those days, freedom from slavery was not necessarily a positive thing. Usually it was not. Um, Most slaves were in that position because of debts they had incurred, and freedom could easily just lead to more destitution, even starvation. So perhaps Onesimus ran away, funded his new life. But then it seems that he had a change of heart. Roman law provided that if there was a dispute between a master and a slave, that a third party could be brought in to mediate the dispute. So it's possible and likely that Onesimus, in running away, had second thoughts and decided to make use of this Roman law, and he seeks out Paul, knowing that Paul and Philemon are beloved friends. Maybe even Onesimus thought that he had earned his freedom. Maybe that was part of the dispute. So perhaps he wants to convince Paul to convince Philemon to release Onesimus. So Onesimus goes and seeks out Paul. And Paul, chained to a Roman guard, shares the gospel with Onesimus. And Onesimus is freed. (laughs) Not from his state of slavery, not from the debts that perhaps he had occurred, but from the slavery of death. From the infinite debt that he owed this infinitely holy creator of his. Onesimus was truly freed. Now, is earthly slavery bad? Yeah. Should Onesimus have been freed? Maybe. We'll get to that in a later week. But first things first, what a tragedy it would be if Onesimus gained his earthly freedom and lost his soul. Not that Paul would turn a blind eye to his earthly freedom, but that would come later. For now, first things first. So Paul, chained down, preaches the unbound gospel, and Onesimus is truly freed, no matter how his circumstances in life would change or not change. He is free. So what to do now? Does he keep him? Evidently, Onesimus spent quite a bit of time with Paul and showed his name to be true. He showed himself to be truly useful to Paul. But there was something bigger Some larger priority than just the furtherance of Paul's ministry. So Paul sends Onesimus back. Sends him back, um, still enslaved to Philemon. There was something more important. That God would be glorified in his church. More specifically in this relationship that each believer shares in. This relationship called koinonia. So our big point today is this, all Christians are saved into Koinonia, which radically transforms our identity and our responsibilities for our good in Jesus Christ's glory. Onesimus and Philemon are now equal partners in this Koinonia. They both now share in all the blessings of this partnership and they both have responsibilities. The way that Paul asks them to display God's glory is through the difficult task of seeking and granting forgiveness. For this koinonia not to be ripped, but to grow. For this koinonia not to be ignored, but obeyed. For this koinonia not to be brushed aside, but submitted to. This is a hard task, forgiveness. I mean, for some, of us, for some of us Christians, this is the hardest thing we'll ever be called to do, is to forgive. Gut-wrenching, frankly. But this is just the kind of real-life intersection where God's glory can shine the brightest. As one writer has said, we're never more like God when we forgive because God is never more like God than when He forgives. When He gives infinite Uh, infinite forgiveness, infinite release, infinite welcome to the one who has offended him infinitely. So this is not a neutral moment. It's a pivotal one. It's a place where God's glory can most clearly be seen. And it is one of the hardest things we'll ever be called to do. Therefore, we need help. (laughs) We need help for this. It is not a neutral moment. So Paul is going to give Philemon and us just the grace and peace we will need to obey God in this difficult task of forgiving in a God-glorifying way, of truly displaying Him in these intersections. Well, we need to remember three vital truths this morning, three vital truths that you and I must prepare ourselves with now in order to bring God glory in our relationships later. We need to remember three things. The good of a people, the grace of the gospel, and the glory of a king. The good of a people, the grace of the gospel, and the glory of a king. First, the good of a people. I mentioned before the, word, uh, the Greek word koinonia, and we need to define it. It doesn't mean women's Bible study, although that's fine for a name for a Bible study, but that's not what it means. Um, Paul uses this in verse 6. I'll begin reading from verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Verse 6 is the central thought of this section and perhaps of the entire letter. Koinonia in general means a sharing in something. In the ESV, that's how it's translated here in verse 6. If you have the ESV, you'll see it. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. The ESV is translating, and the old NIV translates here, sharing. Now, whether it's what they mean or not, when I read the ESV, it seems to say to me um, uh, that koinonia means something about Philemon's evangelizing, something about sharing the gospel which would be a very rare use of this word, koinonia. The newly updated NIV has it translated as partnership with us. Partnership is more the usual meaning. And in the New American Standard, the word is fellowship, which, um, I don't know, for many of us, connotates potluck. But I think um, it can also mean a mutual sharing in something, a mutual sharing in something. And this, this gets closer to the point. So for now, let's call it a mutual participation in something. Now the context, of course, will help us. What does this mean? This mutual participation is, in the ESV, of faith. In verse 6. Of faith. Paul means not the, not the sharing of faith, but that this mutual sharing results from faith. That every person who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has exercised faith, has been placed into koinonia, into a mutual participating in something. So it results from faith. In what? What are we participating in? What are we mutually sharing in? This is vitally important. Paul answers this in the rest of verse 6. Paul's prayer for Philemon is that his mutual sharing with other other believers would become effective, he says. Um, the Greek word there, if I mispronounce it just a bit, will tell you where we get our, an, an, an English word, energeo, <laughs> where we get the word energy. Um, that's not quite the translation, but it, it does have the sense of make, making something happen, or in this case, more specifically, deepening something that you and I already have that every believer has. A knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul asks that this knowledge would deepen and become full. Knowledge of, of what? Of what good things? Well, from this letter and all his writings, Paul means two things. The good blessings that come to us through God's grace, through the gospel, and the good things that God has already arranged for us to do because of the gospel. Our salvation is a gift from God that no one should boast, and so are good works given to us by God in advance that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2. But we must understand the two words, in us, from Paul's and from God's perspective. Um, I think if you're like me, being a good red-blooded Western American uh, Individual, when you read those two words, in us, Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. You think of that in terms of in each one of us. It's in each one of us that these blessings reside. But that's not what Paul means, that's not what he's saying. We need to see this from God's perspective. God gives good things and good works to the church. And we share in what God has given. That's how Paul views this. That's God's perspective on this. We all share in a piece of the whole. No one of us has ever given the whole. This helps to explain why Paul addresses a letter about what we would call a private matter Not only to Philemon, not only to his believing family, but to the whole church. Paul is demonstrating here that there is something to be learned from the whole of all of these relationships that will be vital for Philemon to obey God in this individual matter. When we are placed into koinonia, these these false distinctions between private and public are dissolved. They're dissolved and swallowed up in this thing called this, this mutual participation in the good things of the gospel. <clears throat> Paul is telling Philemon, look at the nature of all of these relationships. Look at the, the intimate connection that you have and how it came about with each and every one of these believers. Now take that reality and go apply it to Philemon. I'm, I'm, excuse, excuse me, to your relationship with Onesimus. In your situation with Onesimus. So koinonia is this, this new intimate relationship that every believer has with every other believer through Jesus Christ, where we mutually participate in the blessings and the callings of the gospel. I'll say that again. Koinonia is the new intimate relationship that every believer has with every other believer through Jesus Christ, where we mutually participate in the blessings and the callings of the gospel, of God. So we need to stop here and drop a little piece of modern-day baggage. Uh, We view so much of Christianity as an individual, private endeavor. We talk about this a lot in this church, Um, and we need to. (laughs) We need to, especially in the American church. We need to talk about it a lot. We need to remind ourselves a lot of this problem and God's perspective on it. Um, Often we study alone so that we can have it all together out there among people. Now, there's nothing wrong with meditating alone on God's Word. Of course not. But our Creator has created this koinonia to be a key means of grace for growth for you. More than that, we see Paul and the early church rejoicing in their identity in Christ together so that they would obey God when they're apart. We often flip that. This is crucial for us. Crucial. Let me ask you a question. Why do you sin? Why do you sin? You sin because you love it. I sin because I love it. So, how do we not sin? We need a bigger love. (laughs) We need to love something more. We need to love God more. But there is a reality here. God's love is so vast, so deep, so wide, that we only gain strength to comprehend it by sharing in it with other Christians. We need to see God's love more from God's perspective. And God has graciously provided that for us. He's provided that for you by the person sitting next to you. He's provided for you a a, a grander, more more nuanced, more full understanding of his love for you by putting that guy next to you in church with you, by putting you in koinonia together. There's a sense that, that there are layers and depths of God's love in which we will never understand alone. That we need each other to do this. We deepen in our knowledge of God's love by experiencing the other person's share of God's love with them. And then ours deepens. And then we learn to obey. We need a bigger love. And it's found in us. We discover it in us, not alone. In fact, it is impossible to discover it anywhere else than in us. It gives us a, a sense of why Paul in Ephesians 3 says that in the church, the manifold, that the many-sided wisdom of God is to be displayed. It will take every person, every tribe, tongue, and language, every culture to do this. To display the magnificent breadth and depth and wonder of God's love throughout all eternity. But we need some of that now. So that we may obey now. And we get that together, not apart. So again, I'm belaboring this. Maybe I'm not belaboring it. But I'm talking about it a lot because so much of American Christianity is focused on you, the individual. We've done it to ourselves. But Paul is saying that you, the individual, is fed and reinforced by you in Koinonia. So remember Koinonia first. Imagine all the good about God that's to be mined in this people, in us. And let the truths of this relationship dominate just how you relate to the other person in us. We must remember who the other person is, a mutual participant in the blessings and callings of God. They got here the same way you did, by God lavishing infinite grace on them, in the same way he's done it to you which brings us certain responsibilities towards that person. Let me give you an example um, from another book and another writer. In 1 Peter 3, I love this chapter. 1 Peter 3, Peter has been explaining to wives how they're to submit to their husbands. That's not why. <laughs> That's not why. <laughs> Stepped into that one. Um, this is the part that I love because I so see myself in it. Then he turns to husbands in verse 7 and tells us, to live with our wives in an understanding way i'm to live with my wife in a way that comprehends just how difficult it is for a sharp girl like her to submit to a dimwit like me <laughs> that's that's what peter's saying here live with her in a way that comprehends how difficult that is then he commands us to show her honor since she's called to the weaker role in this life Now, from the world's perspective, none of this really makes sense until we read the next phrase, which explains why. Since she is heir with you of the grace of life. See, here it's showing up again. Peter is describing this koinonia, though he doesn't use the words. The word. Um, Husbands, base how you treat your wife on the reality of koinonia. She is a mutual participant with you in all the blessings and callings of God. With one glaring exception, in this life, though you are equal participants, God has called her to go, (laughs) it's weird, really, because this is the reality. This is it. It's kind of artificial that God has called her to do this. So honor her. Live with her in a way that seeks to comprehend what it must be like to do this. Then Peter moves from the mutual participation to the individual, he says, so that your prayers might not be hindered. God will be more happy to take the calls of us husbands once we begin to understand and live with our wives in an understanding way with this picture of koinonia in our minds, that she is an equal participant with us. God is saying, do that, then come back and see me. This goes for each one of us in each relationship in this church. Peter goes on in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. You were called to do this. In this relationship that's been bound and defined by the gospel, by what Christ has done. Do this, that you may obtain a blessing. Do you want to be blessed? That's great. That's great. Live with your brother and sister in light of what I have done. Then come back and see me. Love them. Live with them with a tender heart. Show brotherly love. Show them love in, in just a little bit of how I have shown it to you. Then come back and see me. Come back and can see me for what you want. We need God's blessing. As a church, we need His blessing. And He longs to bless us. But I wonder if, if Peter right here, I wonder if for us, this is part of the logjam. I wonder if we're so bound up in, in what we want to be blessed by from God that we ignore the reality of koinonia. We, we ignore that we are mutually participating in the blessings and the callings of God. Brothers and sisters, love your brother and sister. Show tender love. This, just, just do it the way God has done it to you. <laughs> you don't have to use any other template. Bless as you have been blessed. Be lavish as you have been lavished upon Take the gospel and apply it to that other person. Then God says, "Ah, oh, then I'll bless you. I'll bless you. <laughs> he longs to bless the church that is united humbly in koinonia in tender hearts and brotherly love for each other. So we must remember the good of this people, the good that is found in this people, we must remember that all of the good that is to be mined in this people. Well, number two, we must remember the grace of the gospel. Um, and this will be shorter. There's something here that is crucially foundational to all of this, because there is a a deep. Relationship, a key relationship between koinonia and forgiveness. As we've already said, each and every one of us entered into koinonia through infinite lavish forgiveness, through infinite welcome. By God welcoming us with no strings attached. Philemon, or excuse me, Paul is commanding Philemon, welcome Onesimus in the same way. Just do it the way God has done it to you. Well, God's forgiveness is so great, so infinite, that it should define us. It should define this koinonia. It should define us. It should become a a staple, a common characteristic of a koinonia community. Because it defines who we are. The problem is it doesn't show up very much in church. It just doesn't. We don't seek it and we don't offer it. Why is that? I think part of it is we don't get close enough to others to ever be sinned against because it's not fun to be sinned against. Um, It's difficult. But when we do this, we ignore the innate nature of this new fellowship of forgiveness. We ignore the opportunity that forgiveness provides to display God's glory in a way that it never otherwise could be displayed. Or we do get close enough, but when we sin or are sinned against, we sweep it under the rug. We don't ask for forgiveness, nor do we offer it, nor do we give it. More on this in a future week. But I will only say now that this is a glory-robbing moment when this happens. When When we refuse to own up to sin or offer forgiveness, we rob God of glory. But perhaps worst of all, we don't forgive because we've forgotten what an infinite debt we've been forgiven of. We've simply forgotten what got us into this community in the first place. We've forgotten how infinite the debt was that God paid for. If true koinonia is to exist here at Ephraim, so must forgiveness. Real forgiveness free, unfettered, not waiting for the other other guy to come forward forgiveness. Seven times in a day forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that reminds others of God's forgiveness of them. But the flip side to this is that in order to forgive like this, we need real koinonia. We need to be continually growing in our understanding and our experience of God's grace. We need to grow in the strength that's needed to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, width, depth, and breadth of God's love for us. I want to ask you a question. Have you been forgiven by God? Have you been welcomed by the open arms of your Creator? Maybe the problem with some of us is not that we've forgotten His forgiveness, but that we've never received it in the first place. And I will say to you today, there is still open to you the open offer, the free and unfettered offer of infinite forgiveness of every one of your sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you will but trust Him, then you will be forgiven. Then you will be forever free. Be forgiven. Well, one last thing. We must remember the good that is in this people. We must remember um, the grace of the gospel. And lastly, we must remember the glory of this king. This comes in the last phrase of verse 6. For the sake of Christ, he says. All of this is for the sake of Christ. Um, this, This concept of submitting to koinonia submitting to the to the concept of, of our relationship with each other is is first and foremost not for us although much good comes to us but it is not for us this shows itself in the issue of forgiveness we don't forgive to make ourselves feel better although feeling better often does come after forgiveness is granted but that's not why we forgive we forgive first to display god's glory to do to this other person what God has done to us. You see how this transforms these intersections. We we begin to overcome the hurts and the pains and we realize, wait a second, this is a, a massive opportunity for me to display God's glory to this other person. It's not first and foremost about you and me. It's about His glory showing up amongst us. Do you want this? Do you want it? It can happen. If you will remember Koinonia, if you will remember the good that is in this people, if you will remember the grace of God that has come to you, and if you will remember his glory and the priority of his glory, we forgive when we remember these three things. We truly can forgive the way God forgives for his own glory and for the good of the other person. Because forgiveness is just what the other person needs. And then we're being defined by this reality. And God's glory shows up. It is a happy duty born out of being placed in this eternal fellowship called koinonia. He wants much glory from this this, organ, this organism that He's created. Will He find it? Will it show up here? Will He find it here next week when we take communion? When we stand and proclaim the Lord's death, when we stand up and we, we hold our little cups, and we think about the, the blood of Christ that was spilled to forgive us of our sins, the infinite gift that was given for us. It will not be a neutral moment. Next week, God will either be given glory or His glory and His grace will be despised. We will be despising it if we stand up and proclaim the Lord's death and yet behind our back hold grievances against our brothers and sisters when we stand in unforgiveness and bitterness towards our brothers and sisters, we will be ignoring this whole concept, this whole organism of koinonia. And God will not listen. God will not be pleased. But if we take the time this week to forgive where we really need to forgive, or to seek confession where we need to seek it, when we come here next week, God will be glorified. Because when we stand up and we we raise this cup, we will be remembering His gift and we ourselves as a, as a united organism will display ourselves what He has done for us. And He will be glorified. And He will be pleased. And it will be sweet. So I implore you this week to remember the good that is in this people. Remember the grace of God that's been given to you. And remember the glory of this King. And forgive. Let's pray. My God, all I want to say is praise your name. When I think of the infinite magnitude of my own sins before you, and I think of your lavish grace to me, and how you stood in my place, Lord Jesus, and took all of the Father's wrath that was due to me and you took it upon yourself on that cross. I say, Praise your name. How can it be that a cross can bring a smile? How can it be that intersections between two, two sinners can, can bring glory? How can intersections between two sinners sinning against each other bring glory and good? And yet you do that. You do that through your grace, through your spirit, working in us. I pray that you would do that this week. I pray that you would do that in some cases before people hit that door, the exit as they leave today. I pray that you would move within us. Would you cause us to remember your grace, to love it, to revel in it, and to be defined by it. Give us grace for this, I pray, for your glory and for our good. Amen.